these are the, you know, what adds value because you want to add more value more often to your clients, but you can't do this anymore. Just on your own time, you need advice, you need help yourself, you know, and that's where technology comes in. Yes. Today on Bridging the Gap, all the way from London, I am joined by Suzanne Chaisti. Suzanne is the CEO of the FinTech Circle, author and co-author of eight books, a keynote speaker, and a successful and award-winning woman in the FinTech industry. She is dynamic. We jump into the conversation with Suzanne as she speaks about her books, the knowledge behind the mindset of these books, and the lessons consumers will take away when reading her books. Suzanne also dives into how she helps tech startups scale up and sell more to financial institutions, where she sees the technology evolving in the future. And also we talk about women in the industry and how women are making an impact within financial services and the fintech industry. It was just an all-around awesome conversation. Suzanne was an incredible guest. She brought so much insight to the table and it was just an amazing and great conversation. So enough with me. Let's jump into the episode with Suzanne. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Suzanne Chisti from London, but born and raised in Austria. World flavor here today on Bridging the Gap. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us here on Bridging the Gap. How are you? How's everything going over in London? Thanks, Matt, for for inviting me to join the podcast today. I'm really excited to be here in London. It's beautiful here at the moment. So sun is shining. So really happy to to report from what's going on in the UK and across Europe as well. Very nice. I, I love that. And so you've how long have you been in London? You said you're 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 born originally from Austria and now you're in London. So how long have you been in London for? Yes, I'm originally from Vienna, uh, which is the city of music and Mozart, you know, as you know, and, and wonderful food and, 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 and wine. And then I came to Berkeley to study actually at the University of Berkeley, you know, doing my MBA. And then I moved to Accenture, working for consultancies and working for banks. And they moved me to London. This was about 25 years ago, mate. So long time. And then I had my family here, my children, you know, so I decided to stay in London. But I still go back to Austria twice a year, once for skiing, which is mandatory for us, and once just to in summer holidays. Very nice. And, you know, I actually was reading somewhere recently, I think, and, and, and I may be misquoting it, but I think Vienna by The Economist was rated the best place to live. The best place to live. Is that right? Vienna, Australia. It is true because the lifestyle, you know, the quality of life is just fantastic. It's so safe. It's very clean. It's just very happy. It's a very happy nation. And, you know, and and so it's, as soon as you go there, you feel, you feel at ease, you know, you enjoy life. And I think that's what we all need more of, I think, after two years of COVID. Gosh, can Vienna support the entire world? Can we all just move to Vienna, Australia? Will it be able to support us all? Can we all live there? (laughs) Yeah, you're all welcome a- to, to come and visit. You know, it's such a beautiful city. There's so much to see and so much culture and lovely food, you know, from Wiener Schnitzel, Apple Strudel, you know, all these specialties. And of course, amazing music, you know. And so there's, I definitely, you should add it to your list, Matt, you know, to visit Europe and to visit Vienna and Austria. It- it wasn't on the list. Now it's on the top of the list. It's yeah. easy. It, I'm very, I'm very easily influenced. They always say that salespeople are easiest to be sold, and you sold me on that very easily. It was done, <laughs> done deal. I'm going to Vienna. 
my wife and I, and we're going to take our kids maybe. Maybe we'll leave our kids so that it's still a happy place. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> uh, just kidding. I love my kids. They're the best. They're just young. Well, I, I want to jump into this because you are just amazing. I, I mean, I can't believe you know everything you're involved in and everything you've done. I, I, I was counting here. I think it's three, six, seven books you've written in a span of basically five years, which is absolutely incredible. I've written a few books myself. I can't even imagine writing that many books in that period of time. And we talked a little bit about your background. You were at Berkeley, you were at Accenture, you went back to London. But let's you know go from those time in London 25 years ago to where you are today. Tell us about that journey. How did you get to this point to write seven books, You know, head up the FinTech circle, you're a, a FTSE board member, you know, the FinTech book series, like so much going on. Tell us about your journey. And I'm also curious, I always like to ask people, I mean, was this what you wanted to be when you grew up? I mean, what, what when you were, you know, 10, 11, 12, like, what did you want to be? Were you like, I want to be in finance or was it something different? Yes, wonderful questions, you know, and, and maybe I almost have to go back to Berkeley, Matt, you know, because when I was studying in Berkeley, it was at the time the internet was being invented, you know, when you think back 20 years ago, we had Netscape had its IPO. You know, we had the first, we had Yahoo was being launched in Cupertino. And I was studying there in 95, you know, 94. And I remember I was a young student, you know, from Austria. And I did not realize that the internet would change our world and our lives. And therefore, you know, I, I did not I did not decide to join the tech sector at that time because I thought, I wanted to get more safe job, you know, traditional roles. So I went back to Vienna and, and joined a consulting company, Accenture, uh, instead of joining Yahoo as one of the first employees, you know, in the Silicon Valley, for example. So at that time, you know, I didn't realize the importance of technology in our lives, but it taught me a lesson because I was being in Berkeley, you know, being in the Silicon Valley, you're surrounded, obviously, by the best entrepreneurs, the best investors who are changing the world, you know, to some extent. And I didn't see that, you know, because I was just too young and too immature at that time. But now, 20 years later, you know, when I went then to via Vienna back to London and worked for banks here, and before I, I left banking, you know, in 2014 to launch FinTech 30, I could see 20 years later that the whole innovation which which launched you know, 20 years ago for us overall with the internet is now hitting the financial services sector. And finance has been, you know, an, is an old industry, has been around for hundreds of years. And I thought, okay, now it's happening again. You know, 20 years later, I'm again now in London, where I can see all these entrepreneurs launching their fintech startups, all these investors around me wanting to invest in fintech companies. But there was a huge gap. And the gap was the people in banking did not know where the startups were and vice versa. Because if you if you put yourself into the shoes of some a banker, you know, you sit in your ivory tower, uh, what I did, you know, working for large, you know, blue chip banks, and we just know us ourselves. You know, we don't know the startup ecosystem. We didn't know where the startups were even based in London. And so if we wanted to invest in startups, we would not we would, we would not find them. And we would not have very good deal flow. 
And, and, and the, on the other hand, you know, I saw startups wanting to raise capital. But if you want, if you're a fintech company, a financial technology startup, ideally you want to raise capital from investors who understand what you're doing, you know, which either means they're coming from financial services or they've got a tech background. And ideally they should have both because they really get what you're working on and that they can decide if they want to invest in your company or not. And that's what uh, what often is a mismatch. So startups pitch into the wrong investors. They can't raise funding, you know. And that's why I launched FinTech Circle, because I wanted to set up the first investor network, which consists of FinTech investors who understand financial technology. And we choose the best FinTech startups to invest in, in order to uh, find the best investment opportunities, you know, for ourselves and our investors. And your question, you know, if I wanted to do that from the beginning, probably I did not know about this sector, to be honest. And if I would have known about it, I would have said yes, because I love what I'm doing and, and I love to be my own boss, you know, and, and, and run my own business. But sometimes, I guess, when we are younger in our lives, we just don't know what's out there in terms of career opportunities. So the, the, I think the key lesson really is to be open-minded, you know, and, and almost go with the opportunity and, and take it step by step. I love that. I love that. And you've, you, I, I think that there's such a need out there to what you're saying, right, of, of amazing fintech companies. There's just a disconnect. It's such a large moat in between the startup and the established. And for the established to understand what the startup's all about, because how they analyze decisions is totally different than how startups analyze decisions or how startups should be analyzed. And vice versa, right? How startups think about business isn't, you know, they should think a little bit more like an enterprise, but they just can't at that time and they don't know. And so I'm curious to see, you know, as y'all have built this out, right? Y'all are helping these startups connect. So are y'all bringing a community of investors and investing in these startups? And I'm curious, you know, maybe just highlight, you know, one or two of the startups that you've got, y'all have invested in so far. And I'd love to just know what they're doing and how is FinTech Circle helping them beyond just the, of course, the capital from that standpoint? I would love to dig into that because I think it's something that's so necessary and even more needed than ever before. If you want to keep innovation happening, you want to change an industry, we need more of this. So I love what you're doing. Yes, yes, that's so true, Matt. I mean, I can give you one example. So one example, the company is called LenderWise. LenderWise is a global platform which sells and buys digital commodities. And what this means is, so if we think about telephone calls, you know, even now when we do a call, you know, for a podcast, uh, there are normally lots of telecoms operators in the middle, you know, to connect a phone call. And banks, traditionally, they cannot see that. I mean, we all can't see that, you know, unless you, you actually measure the minutes, how long a phone call takes. And these are called digital assets. And LenderWise has developed a platform to monitor and count those digital assets and then to provide cash flow forecasting for telecoms operators who need cash flow because they maybe need to pay out money, but they've not received it yet, you know, from the tier one players mm. who pay in 90 days, but they already need money now. So LenderWise is an example of a platform which allows investors to get higher interest rates. I mean, we know that in the last you know, few years, we had a very low interest rate environment where most people were 
you know, getting, I don't know, 1%, you know, at all in, in banks. When you put your money in a bank account, a current account, you got nothing, you know, back. But at this lenderwise platform, you got like 6 7% back. And now, of course, it all goes up because inflation is now, you know, with us for maybe a few years. So now people look for higher interest rate investment opportunities, but which are still safe. You know, and Lenderweiss here, all these invoices, they are insured, you know, by Hermes, an insurance company. So you can invest safely, you know, in a risk reduct, reduced way, but you're using a technology platform to connect the investors and the telecoms operators who need the cash to operate well. You know, and that's what the company does. That's a company I invested in, you know, the first time. They were launching, you know, five years ago. I now I'm on the chair, I chair the board, you know, I'm so an investor and also a board member. And, and I think this company is on to become a unicorn, you know, uh, because they are doing something which nobody else can do globally yet. But that's that's one example. But there are that's lots incredible. of incredible. Yes, lots of great. That's incredible. Examples. You know, it's something that I wouldn't even think about turning into an asset, but it's a need, it's a niche, and it's a need. And now with the evolution of technology, there's an ability, right? So there's an ability to solve it. I don't know if there would have been an ability to solve that maybe 10 years ago, but now there is because of how much evolution and innovations happen in the industry. And so I want to trans- transition for a second and I want to go to your books and some of the lessons you learned. I, you know, I think it's so interesting how you wrote these books. You know, you crowdsourced from the best fintech experts. I, you know, I'm curious why you went that way, right? And how, how did that process look to build a book when you're dependent on all of these other people and bringing it together to make it meld, you know, tell a fair story. And then I want to dig into a couple of these books and understand some more about them. But just the process, I mean, God bless you. That is a, it's tough enough to write a book by yourself. Now that you're dependent on others, it's got to be kind of such a crazy, crazy experience. And I'd love to learn more about that and, you know, how that all went and, and why, why you went that route. Yes. I mean, the you know, as a background, you I, I, I tell you about Fintech Circle. So Fintech Circle is 130,000, uh, a community of 130,000 people globally. You know, these all Fintech startups, Fintech investors, financial services professionals. And when we said, you know, we launched our first book, which was called the Fintech Book five years ago, we concluded that none of us knows it knows everything. You know, there's not one person who has all the answers. And so we came from a humble point perspective where we said, in, instead of just having one author for the book, you know, who could just share their own expertise, let's reach out to our global community and say what we want to write about, give them the table of content, and then run a competition to get the best experts and thought leaders to contribute to this book. And so this was the idea behind because we wanted the best know-how globally, you know, combined in a book because it's also more valuable for the reader because the reader gets the know-how of, of 70 co-authors instead of just one. And that's that's why we did those crowdsourced books, you know, which we did. I love that. So let's let's dive into some of these that are near and dear to my heart. And we're going to start with the... Uh, it's a more recent one that you launched, which is the AI book, right? The Artificial Intelligence Handbook for Investors, Entrepreneurs, and Fintech Visionaries. I'm not going to ask you to read the whole book or tell us the whole table of contents, but I would like to know, after writing that book, you know, and, and, and also for people that read that book, what are maybe one or two takeaways that you have regarding AI for this industry, for financial advice or for, or for wealth management, for fintech, for whatever it may be? What are one or two takeaways that you took away from the book that you hope others would as well? 
Yes. Yes. So the AI book, you know, about artificial intelligence in financial services basically analyzes how AI machine learning can be used across the whole financial services sector in order to help us individuals make better decisions, you know, in order to help us reduce our risks and sometimes to also earn more money, to so earn more revenues. You know, those are normally the, 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 the examples. So one example is client onboarding. You know, when you think about client onboarding as a financial advisor, for example, you know, you want to onboard the right clients. You want to avoid any any fraudsters, any anybody you don't want to onboard. So you need to assess them. You know, you need to do your know your customer checks, KYC checks, anti-money laundering checks. And, and those things now, you know, you can use also more technology to help you do those checks faster, more accurately. And that's one area where AI becomes more important, you know, to play an important role. The other option or the other, you know, use case are payments. If you are a payment company and you get payments every second, you know, you can't have a person checking for fraudulent payments because this person wouldn't see that. You know, they, they would flicker through your screen. You couldn't even spot those payments coming in. So you need to use AI solutions choosing and checking for certain patterns. You know, at what time of the day, in what volumes, how are those payments being made? Are they suspicious? You know, these suspicious transaction reports use more and more AI as well. So that's what we analyzed in the AI book. How can AI be used? And our our principal thought process always is, which I know is very similar to yours, Matt, is that we want to empower people with technology. You know, so we are not there about replacing individuals or, or, or financial services experts. We want to empower them. So what are the best uses, you know, for AI, for technology, for fintech, you know, to really make us as people more effective and, and make us better in what we do? I mean, that's music to my ears. That is exactly kind of the MO and the, the mentality that I have. And that's kind of the passion that I bring, I want to bring to this industry is that technology is there to augment and to help, not to replace. And, and, and I think that AI is there. You know, and I think about onboarding, that's such an interesting area to look at, right? Because, you know, there's got to be an easier way. Everybody, I talk with many advisors all the, uh, you know, each week, and they all talk about wanting to figure out how to simplify the onboarding process. And the, the thing is, is that the tools are there. There's a regulation gap as well that we need to kind of fill that void. Because, you know, in theory, we have all that data. We should be able to have them put in their social security number and pull all the rest of the data to be able to fill out forms quite quickly to help with that. I think that the challenge that people have right now is that AI is used as a marketing ploy. Hey, I got AI. This is AI. And nobody really knows what it is, which causes people to call, you know, I'll just you know, be blunt, call BS on it, right? Being like, I don't know. I don't believe it. I don't trust it because I don't know what it is. And I think that there's an education gap there. And so I'm curious from your perspective, right? And I bet you if I asked five people what AI is, they'd get five different answers. And I think that that's the main challenge that we have to overcome in the industry. But from your perspective, what is artificial intelligence? I mean, there, there are many definitions, you know, like it comes down to, and the way I define it, it's basically, it's, I would say, computer-assisted decision-making using la- vast amount of data 
which helps us make better decisions. But then, of course, there is also AI where decisions are being made individually without our support, without our input, where the computers are being trained to see certain patterns, you know, to see certain certain data points and therefore make certain assumptions, certain conclusions. And that's where ethical AI comes in. Because when you think about how do you train the computers, you know, to do certain things. And I give you an example of unethical AI. You know, we have we have seen that thinking about who works in the kitchen, you know, AI in the past has been trained to show just images of women. It was the mother, you know, being just in the kitchen preparing the food. And so when when people said in the household if AI would have picked, you know, the gender of the person staying in the kitchen, they would have chosen a female because that's the data which was fed into the AI, into AI platforms. And that's where it's so important now, you know, when we think about training, you often heard the word, we have to train AIs, you know, with thousands, with millions of images. And the question is, who is doing that? You know, who is doing those training examples? You know, who is feeding, who is teaching, uh, you know, how AI works? And there, there are ethical considerations to be taken into account. And that's where there's a, a huge goal now in our industry to develop global standards. Because in this case, you don't want any arbitrage. You know, you don't want countries who cut corners and allow things to happen which shouldn't happen. But ideally, you would like, you know, us as, as global nations to ensure that all these systems are being fed with the right amount of data because otherwise when you think about discrimination then the discrimination can happen on the surface which is easier to spot but it would be horrible if discrimination goes almost underneath the surface you know is triggered or built into ai systems where you then would have you know ai systems making the wrong decisions for example lending you know who gets a loan there are lots of online technology companies out, you know, where you apply for a loan online and you get either rejected or accepted within minutes. And those decisions are made by AI. So if you get rejected, you know, you want to know why. It shouldn't be a black box, but you should be told, you know, what should you improve in order to be more credit worthy. And certainly it should be not be done in any discriminatory way. You know, so those decisions are so important. That's why AI is such an important role, plays an important role in our society. And I would say it's important for us as a society to ensure that everybody in our society, so all genders, all age groups, you know, all everybody in our society really has got the opportunity to participate in building these AIs, in learning and studying, you know, how it works, in being part of companies who build it, and that it does, it's not left to just a certain group of our population, because this would not be fair and would not make sense long term. Yeah, I think that I think that that's one of the biggest debates is is the ethical nature of AI, and I I, I think that there is we can get over that. I, I think that your explanation of AI is really good because it's a matter of, you know, the simplest way that I've tried to say people is it's it's human intelligence at scale, right? You're you're taking what you would do that maybe in processing it faster and doing it quicker and more deeply than a human probably could do, but you train it and tell it what you would want to do, right? It's what you would want to do, but we cannot process data that fast. And, you know, you think about like the loan example and, you know, there's a lot of examples out there that in, and I, it, that, you know, show potential, but there's also potential for discrimination on ethicalness or unethical standards or actions. But I think that one of the things that we all have to have an open mind on when it comes to artificial intelligence is that, 
we get we always shun it away when those times when it does wrong. But in reality, that same wrongness by the technology is being done by humans. We just don't see it all the time. Yes. And the beauty with artificial intelligence is that we can train that out of it where we can't train that out of humans. And I, I think we all have to keep that in mind, right? Because I think that this the unethical conversation comes up and I think it should. But it needs to be reminded to everybody that we can help to solve that and and train it with more data and more insight and more knowledge to get it to be the ethical standard that we want. Yeah. Whereas humans, it's hard, right? We don't know every employee in every bank. There's discrimination happening all the time. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate. And uh, AI, we can actually put some controls into it and monitor it a lot easier, which is a huge, huge benefit, I think longer term for us. So I think we just have to change our perception of it. Now, I, I want to switch gears one more time to the wealth tech book. That's something that's near and dear to me. So again, I want to ask the same question and have a conversation around this because wealth tech is again, where I'm, that's my, that's my love and passion, right? Wealth management is what I grew up in. I believe technology can help to provide access to human financial advice to, you know, that's my passion to more to everybody. Everybody should have access to human financial advice. And I think technology can help with that. So tell me one or two takeaways that you took from doing the wealth tech book that you also hope that others would take. Yes. I mean, on, on wealth tech, you know, that's, I, I must say as a background, you know, I worked for Morgan Stanley asset management for seven years in London and in Hong Kong. And so you know, being in a financial advisory capacity is something which is deep to my heart. And that's why I wanted to co-write this book, you know, because it's such an important book, I think, for our, our, our world. And maybe to set it, set some background, you know, give you some background data. But if you look, we looked at the UK, for example, in the UK, 92% of UK adults don't take any financial advice which is incredible. So literally 92%, you know, of UK adults don't take any financial advice. And then we all looked at the global wealth transfer and we saw that about 68 trillion, you know, is going to be inherited over the next two decades. So there's a global wealth transfer happening. And then the other thing which was concerning to us was that the average age of people who took financial advice was about 63 years old. You know, so we've got the young people who probably need most financial advice to build up the wealth, don't get it because it's too expensive. And so this poor penetration of the mass market of the next generation is a big issue. And, and then we had the issue that we have financial advisors, you know, who say that 40% plus of their time is spent on admin tasks. You know, because they don't use technology. So we have got lots of financial advisory companies where the private bankers, the financial advisors spend 40% just on admin and not on actually advising, you know, uh, their end clients, which they would prefer to do much more. And then also on the large onboarding costs, you know, in, in the UK, it's about £2,600, so about more than $3,000, you know, to on average to onboard a client to an IFA. And, and all of that is an issue, obviously, because we should advise more people, but we can't because it's too expensive. And that's where technology comes in, because technology allows you to provide advice to people whom you could not advise beforehand because it would have been unprofitable for you as a company, and you could not therefore not offer this service to those people. Equally, it means that with technology, you can do 
more advice, you know, and less admin because you've got technology at your fingertips. And that's what this book is all about. You know, the Wealth Tech book at the end of the day is about how you can use technology to reach customer segments which have been unprofitable for financial advice in the past by using technology to scale up your advice, such as client robo-advisors, you know, would be one example, but also using technologies to reduce your own administration task as a financial advisory company by using companies such as Ammonite. You know, Ammonite is a company in the UK. They do, they, it's called B2B. So it's a B2B fintech company, a wealth tech company. So they don't go out to the end customer, but their customers are financial advisors. And they saw that 87% of advisors want the firm to have better technology, but normally companies don't. And, and the issue, therefore, is, you know, when you meet your customer, for example, and you assess them, you know, what are their needs, what are their goals, what are the risk return parameters, you often it takes weeks before you go back to your customer with a proposal. And with Ammonite, for example, you do this within a few hours, a few days maximum. And so you reduce, you know, 80% reduction of onboarding time. But you also increase the conversion by 50% of your customers because often customers jump off, you know, if the onboarding takes too long or the value creation takes too long. So those are all examples which are covered in the Wealth Tech book. So I, I really love that. And you talk about the transfer of wealth, right? $68 trillion. And I, I think that also within wealth tech, what is so in, inspiring to me as well, and we all talk about the transfer and the nominal amount of money. And I think that that's super interesting that the average age of someone that gets financial advice is 63 years old, right? That's a little bit late to get financial advice because you've already passed your well, you're well past your earning years, right? There's not much that someone can do. I was on another podcast that we had another guest on, Christopher Music, and we were talking about how you know it's a matter of helping people not just invest and manage their investments, but help them grow their income. But you can't do that at 63 years old. But the difference with the, the wealth transfer that I think another way of thinking about it is not just the nominal amount, but for financial advisors, what that means is that you're going to have more families that you're going to have to serve for the same AUM or assets under management. Yes. Because you know a family that has $3 million today that passes away, if they're a baby boomer and they pass away and they have two kids or three kids, now you have a, three new clients that each have a million dollars. And they have three unique situations that you have to plan for and help with, which now means that you have a capacity challenge. And I think that that's really the interesting aspect because you know, for people that don't have that money, now they have access to go and and get you know a million or two million new assets. But for the company that does have that family, in order to keep that same AUM, you have to have served three families, and that's that becomes a capacity challenge that you have to use technology to help with, or you're going to be you're going to struggle and you're going to lose assets. And uh, you know, I think that that's what the 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 generational transfer of wealth is: is that more people are going to have wealth, which means more people are going to need to be served, which means that we're already in a in a challenge with with finding good talent, quality talent in this industry. So the question is, is how are you going to serve it? And it's got to be with technology, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you saw anything of that. I wonder what you're seeing over in the UK on that, Suzanne, as well, um, on that topic. No, you're spot on, spot on, Matt. It's exactly the issues we see here as well, that you need, you know, you need to remind us about what adds value to your clients. Because if you've got more clients, you actually can remember in detail, you know, you need to be reminded these, are the, you know, what adds value because you want to add more value more often to your clients, but you can't do this anymore just 
on your own time. You need advice. You need help yourself. You know, and that's where technology comes in. Yes, very true. To scale yeah. up, to scale up your business. This- the scale up and stay efficient. So I want to ask two more quick questions. And uh, well, this first one quick, the second one I want to dig into for a second. And then I want to wrap up and get you back, let you get back to the beautiful London uh, weather over there. Uh, The future of fintech, right? So you've written, you've followed, you understand fintech, your fintech circle you run, you see a lot. I'm curious, what are some of the trends that we should be aware of in fintech? And, And where do you see fintech in five and 10 years, right? Is it, is it going to, is it going to have this hockey stick kind of impact and growth in the industry? Or is it still just going to kind of continue to run into some established hurdles that we see in the industry of, of the established players kind of naming or, or building their own rules for this game? Yes. We, we see three trends at the moment. The first one is called green fintech or green finance. The second one is called embedded finance. And the third one is about financial inclusion. And I will give you more information about on all three. But the first one about green fintech or green finance, it's all about ESG, about environment, you know, social governance consideration, about moving towards net zero, reducing our carbon footprint. And there are fintech companies out who help us with it. You know, for example, if I would ask you, are you carbon obese? You know, you wouldn't know and I wouldn't know either because I don't know if I'm carbon obese or not because I don't even know what my carbon footprint is today. And that's the issue because how can we reduce our carbon footprint as individuals and also as companies if we don't even know the starting point? And that's where fintech companies help us to measure, you know, where are we now and how can we improve our carbon footprint in order to avoid carbon obesity? You know, it's a new term I learned. I didn't know about this term beforehand. So, and so it's green fintech, you know, green finance, a big, big uh, new development. The second one is about embedded finance. And embedded finance actually means you do things and you don't even notice. You don't see that you, you know, you buy something like Uber is the best example. You know, take an Uber, you get out of the car and you've paid, but you never actually paid, you know, but you, you actually have paid because it happens behind the scenes, you know, without you noticing it. And we will see much more of that. We'll see more of embedded insurance, you know, embedded financing services, embedded payments, embedded lending. So these are all areas where, for example, in the future, when you buy a house, you know, you buy a new property and you you normally, what you want is a new house to, to live in. You know, you don't want a new mortgage. You don't want a new insurance, but you have to get those things in order to buy the house. But these are always the necessary things to get, you know, but it's not the primary objective is to own a mortgage or to own an insurance policy. So those things will be embedded in the purchase of the house in the future. You know, so when you go to the real estate agent, you choose that's a lovely house I want, you know, and then automatically it will tell you these are the loans you could get. You know, these are the insurance policies. Just click which one you prefer. So it will make our life easier by having these embedded financial services at our fingertips. And the third trend we see is global financial inclusion. And you know, probably there are 2 billion people in our world with no bank accounts. So that's a huge issue, you know, because, I mean, I can't even imagine a life without a bank account. You know, where would you put your money? Where would you save? You know, you would you sleep would sleep very unwell at night if you would have to put literally your money, you know, under the mattress because you've got nowhere else to put it safely. But there are 2 billion people who have no bank accounts. And uh, fintech can help them because everybody's got a phone. 
You know, everybody's got a mobile phone. And so we see mobile phones becoming the new bank accounts, you know, becoming the new ways of sending money abroad, you know, to your families back home, for example, to support them. Equally now, you know, when we see about the refugee crisis, you know, because of the war, you know, in the Ukraine, the Russia-Ukrainian conflict, you know, lots of refugees, the only thing they've got when they leave and escape, you know, they've got their mobile phone with them. You know, so mobile phone is key, you know, and financial technology is helping refugees, you know, to get access to money wherever they have to go. So we see much more financial inclusion is a large, the third trend which we're seeing. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and carbon obesity is a new word for me as well. So thank you for introducing me to that as well. Now, the last question I just want to touch on, because I, I think I'm a huge advocate for, and I think that it's something that needs to be talked about more is the aspect that women are still underrepresented across finance and technology. And especially you, you think about leadership roles. And I was reading a stat earlier, and again, I don't quote me on it, but I uh, it was a, it was talking about the progression of of a of a ruling over in the United States called Title IX, which requires colleges to have more female athletics at their schools, uh, and a ratio of females to male athletics. And I think it's said that now there's 44 percent of college athletes are women, and it was I think before the 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 the, the rule went in, I think it was like. 10 to 20% roughly, which shows drastic, you know, expansion in there. And we're making progress, but we're just not where we need to be in terms of finance and women in this industry and in leadership roles. And so I'm given where you are in a leadership role, a voice for finance, a voice for technology, you know, for all the women listening to the podcast uh, that, that have this desire to do more in this industry or in technology, What's a specific piece of advice that you can give to help them really kind of continue to, you know, quote unquote, break through the glass ceiling or just continue to advance in this industry because we need more people, more women to do so? Yes, I would say the advice for women would be to uh, ask for more. Do not ask for more payment when they start their jobs. Ask for more promotions, you know, when when they, when they want to get promoted, when they think they deserve promotions. Ask for more bonus payments. Just ask for more. Don't be shy, you know, and, and just ask for more because if you don't ask, you don't get normally. So that's, I think, one, one key thing. And then the other thing I would say is, that from the other, the corporation's point of view, I think we need more targets. We need more goals. Because anything which matters in business has got goals. You know, we've got a budget. At the end of the year, we need to achieve a certain budget in terms of AUM, in terms of revenues and costs. So we should have budgets, you know, for gender diversity at, at every stage of the company and often the gender diversity is equal at graduation stage you know when people are coming from university we get 50 50 gender split but the more we go up in the hierarchy the less women we have got and so we need budgets at each level you know when you are an associate a vice president and a director a managing director we should always keep this 50 50 split and we need we need to encourage women also to come back after maternity leaves and make it easier for them. Being both a mother and a career woman, you know, having more more time away with the children, being able to work part time. So those are just things I think which are really important to achieve. But I think it it has 
it definitely has a big role is the company to create a welcoming atmosphere for women uh, at every level of the organization up to board level. You know, at boards, we often don't have 50-50 split, not at all. You know, in the UK, we are very behind. I think in America, you're further above uh, the UK, but we should have a goal, you know, to be 50-50 in every single layer of the organization. And people should be rewarded for achieving that. And if you don't achieve that, then it should be, you know, the management who's responsible for that. And if they don't achieve, there should be consequences. And that's how we move, you know, move forward, I think, in, in our society. Yeah, I think it's definitely something in in US has to, has continued to progress a little bit better, right? We we've we've had a lot of progression there, but we still have a lot more to go, right? We have a farther way to go and so it's just a matter of voices like yourself and just all of us keeping it as a topic of conversation and not letting it just go to the wayside as yeah. as business and 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 the economy continues to move on. I would on. say one one uh, thing match to you know what I think is what I know where the UK is advanced and you know, further advanced than in the states is maternity leave. Then I believe in I mean in the UK, we have got six months. Every every woman has got six months paid maternity leave. I believe in the US, it's it's much less than that, you know. And the best companies pay a whole year, you know, maternity leave. So this allows women then to really look after their children, you know, have happy children at the end of the day because it's important for our society, but equally be able to come back to work. So I think that's important because otherwise you've got a mental health issues. You know, if you expect women to do both, you know, work full-time and full-time raise the children, it's impossible to do that. So I think that's, I think where the government has to come in and offer more maternity support, you know, for women who want to rejoin the workforce afterwards, but also be able to relax at home because being at home actually is not relaxing. You know, with small children, it's very hard work. And then you've got all nighters, you know, with small babies, but I think to have more support at this age for mothers, I think that's also very important. Such a great point. Such a great point. And just a great voice for for women in this industry. And, and I hope you continue to, to kind of keep that voice heard. Um, I'm going to let you get back to your day to day. This has been a true pleasure. But before I let you go, I have to ask the two questions I ask all my guests. And the first question is, you know, the reason one of the main reasons I do these conversations is to be able to learn. And I love to learn from others by conversation, because there's a lot that I don't know. And this conversation was no different. I learned a ton. And um, I other way I'd like to learn is read books. And I like to read books that others that are smarter than me are reading. And so that's why I always ask my guests, what's one book that you think outside of your own books, outside of your own books, the, because we all know they should go buy all of your books. What's one book that, that you think our listeners should read? Yes, I've got it here as well. It's called Influence. The Psychology of Persuasion. So that's a book I'm reading at the moment. I, I think it's you know over 5 million copies sold, but I think it's such an important book because it shows us how we get influenced by others, you know, equally how we can influence others. And, uh, and it's just eye-opening, you know, and it gives examples, you know, which I think which I use sometimes in my daily life subconsciously. Uh, but equally, it opens you up how we get often, you know, influenced by companies and we might not want to fall for that. So it really is a, a huge learning, a, a great book, very well written as well. So that's one I would recommend, Matt. I love it. And then the last question I have, I, I give credit to Barron's because they did this at their conference and I loved it. So I wanted to use it on the podcast is, you know, from our conversation today, what do you think is one actionable takeaway our listeners should take? from this conversation to help them be better tomorrow or the next day. Uh, but what's that one piece of actionable advice you think our listeners should take away today? I would say to acknowledge that technology doesn't stop. 
you know, so technology, fintech, wealthtech is, there will be more and more coming. So there will be in our society, there will be an algo line, I call it. You know, an algo line, basically, either you're on top of it or you're below it. If you're below the algo line, you, it means that you've got a computer as your boss. You know, when you think about the Uber drivers, you know, they get told by a computer, by the app, where to go, whom to pick up. If they lose their jobs, they get just deactivated from the app. So they are below the algo line. Ideally, we want us, we want our children to be on top of the algo line. So we want to use technology to have better lives, you know. But to be aware, there is an algo line in our society developing and uh, and be in order to be on top of the algo line, you need to use technology and you need to learn about it. So keep on learning. I love that. I love that. Suzanne Chisti, you're you're amazing. You're great. So thankful for you to spend time with us and share your knowledge. I mean, I learned a ton. I'm sure our listeners will definitely learn a ton. And I can't wait to stay and continue to stay in touch and continue to follow you. And I'm sure our listeners want to stay in touch and follow everything you're doing. So what's the best way for our listeners to follow you, stay in touch with you and continue to see all the impact that you're making uh, on the world of finance and fintech? Yes. One way is to follow our website, which is fintechcircle.com. I also tweet you know, on Twitter. So it's either my personal name, Suzanne Chisti, or again, Fintech Circle, Twitter accounts, also on LinkedIn. You know, you can follow me on LinkedIn. And also we've got a Fintech Circle group on LinkedIn where we've got about 35,000 members now, which you can join at no cost. You know, so please feel free to join the Fintech Circle group on LinkedIn. Also on Instagram, you can follow us, you know, Fintech Circle. Also our books all have got their own accounts on Twitter, on Instagram, on, on LinkedIn as well. So depending what are your interests, you know, please, yes, join us, follow us online. And we'll put a list of all the books, uh, all seven of them, in uh, in the notes to this podcast as well, with links to go and, and buy them. And please be do be sure to do so. Suzanne, you're amazing. Keep doing the amazing work that you're doing for our industry. I'm forever grateful for you for that. And uh, stay well and be well. And thank you again for taking time to join us here on Bridging the Gap. Thank you so much, Matt. It was an honor to join you today. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think.